Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Rico, And uh, as always, we've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we're live every Thursday evening from uh, 6 to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern for those of you uh, right out in the East Coast. And I want to thank you all tonight uh, for joining me here on the blogtalkradio.com network. I'm going to tell you in just a moment a little bit about tonight's show. Uh, we're going to, of course, uh, welcome you back the Coach's Corner panel. And i got some great guys uh, in the wings, if you will, just waiting. But I'm going to first... Uh, let you know uh, some great ways that you can tune into the show and a little bit how you can uh, get in touch with me if you're interested in being a guest on the show and that sort of thing. Uh, as always, we're, we're live Thursdays from, as I said, 6 to 8 p.m. Central on the blogtalkradio.com network. Best way to find us is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive or just simply type golftalklive up in the search key and that will take you to the main page. And, of course, uh, during the live broadcast, of course, uh, we're front and center. Uh, but for some reason, if you can't join us live, and uh, you want to tune in a little bit later when maybe it's more convenient for you, just visit that link and scroll down to the on-demand section. And as always, all of the previously aired shows will be there uh, in their entirety, so you can scroll down and find one that you've missed or maybe listen to one you've listened to before uh, and just catch up on on some of the great tips and that uh, on Coach's Corner or maybe an interesting guest that uh, you didn't get a chance to tune in the first time. Uh, Also, some other great ways that you can tune in is go to Stitcher.com, iTunes.com, and TuneIn.com, and again, just type in Golf Talk Live, and that will take you there as well. Uh, Also, you can reach out to me through uh, social media. You can find out about the show if you go to Facebook.com forward slash Golf Talk Live blog, and uh, that will give you all of the uh, details and that of the show on there. And you can also on my personal page, which is Ted Odorico, and it's O-D-O-R-I-C-O. Uh, you can uh, on Facebook there. You can check it out there as well, uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO CEO in capital letters, or you can go to GolfTalkLiveBlog.com, which is the website for the show, and uh, get again all the updates and things there. Uh, if you're interested in being on the show, as I mentioned, you can reach out to me personally. My email address is Ted.GolfTalkLive at gmail.com. Uh, just send me a note if you're somebody in the golf uh, profession. You don't necessarily have to be a teacher professional. Uh, or coach, maybe you're uh, somebody that's written a great book or you've got an interesting uh, product or service that uh, uh, is uh, compatible with the golf industry and you think that it might be something of value uh, to the listeners, by all means, feel free to to reach out to me at that email. Uh, Or you can call and speak to the guests live uh, during the Thursday night broadcast. The number to call is area code 646-716-4667. As I mentioned, we've got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be starting off uh, again this week with uh, a great... uh, uh, coach's Corner panel. Uh, I didn't have one last week because of the long weekend. I decided to give uh, the panel that was going to be on uh, a little bit of a break, but they're back here uh, tonight. And so far, I've got uh, a couple of the guys on. One of the guys is still missing in action, but hopefully he'll join us here shortly. 
Uh, but let me just tell you a little bit about them. And then, of course, later in the show, uh, my very special guest, again, is going to be Brett Cohen. Uh, he's a golf fitness instructor and fitness over 50 authority and, of course, founder of the NY or New York Golf Fitness Guru uh, up in uh, the great uh, Big Apple, New York City. So he's going to be joining me on the second half of the show. Let me just tell you a little bit about the guys, and then uh, I'll bring them on, and we'll, we'll start tonight's discussion. Uh, one of uh, my first uh, guests on the Coach's Corner panel, of course, is Clint Wright. Uh, he's a 30-plus year member of the PGA, uh, also a partner at TGM Golf, and a big proponent of the R3 approach, which, which of course, he's talked about here uh, a number of times over the years on the show. And, and really, in my opinion, one of the best covering the short game today. And, of course, one of my favorite guests and panelists here on Coach's Corner. Uh, next up, of course, is Brandon Stukesbury. Uh, he's been on the Coach's Corner, and he's been a, a featured guest as well. He's a Class 8 member of the PGA of America and director of instruction at the Idle Hour uh, Club in Macon, Georgia. Uh, he's been recognized by Golf Digest as one of the best young teachers and has been ranked by Golf Digest as best in state, both in Nevada and in Georgia. Uh, he's also an Amazon best-selling author of The Wedge Book and soon to be released, The Putter Book. And we'll get a little bit of an update a little bit later on in that. And specializes in short game and putting instruction. Uh, and he's also originally from Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, actually graduated from the U- University of Tennessee and is a diehard volunteer fan. So we'll ask him a little bit about that as well. Uh, hopefully joining us tonight, and I'll just read a little bit out about him uh, just in case he jumps in a little bit later on. But James Kyle is supposed to be joining us tonight as well on the Coach's Corner panel. Not here quite yet, but he's a PJ uh, professional and owner of James Kyle Golf Academy. Uh, in 2014, uh, he was the West uh, Central Chapter PGA Teacher of the Year. And in 2012, he was the West uh, Central Chapter PGA Junior Golf Leader of the Year. And a 2011 U.S. Kids Top 50 Teacher, uh, honorable mention. So, uh, Clint and Brandon, I know you're here now. So, guys, uh, welcome to Coach's Corner. Thanks, Ted. Glad to be here. Ted, always a pleasure, buddy. Thanks. All right. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, I appreciate it. All right, we're going to talk about, I told you a little bit off, off air, we're going to get a little bit more involved here. Um, on the panel tonight, we're going to talk about something that I know that, that you both really are big proponents of, and it just actually falls well into the wheelhouse for both of you, and uh, particularly now with you, Brandon, because I know you're, you're getting ready uh, uh, this year to, to release another book uh, called The Putter Book. So this will sort of fall in. We're going to talk about the, the general theme is using your senses, uh, putt better with a cleaner mind, and there's a lot of things, you know, we've talked about senses before and about the mindset uh, of a golfer and, and some of the things that the do's and the don'ts, if you will. And I, I want to th- just read a couple of things, and then I'm going to start with you, Clint, and then, and then Brandon, I'm going to uh, flip over to you. I think one of the things that a lot of people get confused about is, is they think that the secret to lower scores, of course, is to, to get out there in the driving range and hit hundreds, hundreds of balls on the practice tee. Uh, and really... Uh, that might be good to, to help improve your swing, uh, but it's certainly not necessarily going to help you lower your scores nearly as much as honing in on your short game. And we've all talked about that, specifically your putting. So if you want to improve your putting, you need to do uh, to get your senses involved. Putting at the simplest of all uh, is the simplest of all golf skills, but is possibly the easiest to complicate. Um, so I want to pose that question to you first, Clint. Why do you think, uh, based on that statement there, and given that putting really is easy as far as the stroke is concerned and, and all of the components, why so many people struggle with putting? Well, first of all, Ted, I don't believe that a lot of people that play this game believe what you just said. Um, you, you watch people go out and on the putting green if they, if they get there. They spend a tremendous yeah. amount of time working on 
that simple movement. Uh, instead of spending time on learning how to use that movement. Um, right. I, I use a little simple drill to prove to them that their putting mechanics are good enough. Simply put a tee about 12 inches in front of their ball and see if they can hit it. If they can mm-hmm. hit that tee, their putting mechanics are good enough to put the ball online. So what I focus on at that point is trying to convince them that they need to learn and to be taught how to determine where that line's at, how hard to hit the ball, where the break is going to be, the the intellectual side of putting. And most people just don't believe that their putting stroke or the mechanics is good enough, so they waste a lot of time uh, of their of their practice time working on something that's good enough and ignoring the parts that are making it difficult. Right. Right, exactly. And, and Brandon, let me get you to jump in on this. I just want to read a little bit more uh, here from the notes, and then I want to get your, your thoughts uh, on what Clint just said, but also uh, a little bit on, on what I'm about to say here. Um, there's obviously many great putters out there, and I'm talking about individuals, whether it be on the, the PGA or the LPGA Tours, uh, who have several different grip styles, stroke styles, and putter designs, and everyone is unique in what works. Uh, there really is no one right way to get the task done. However, great putters do have one thing in common, and, and that is they're able to connect the right side of their brain, uh, which is where the brilliant human uh, supercomputer lies, if you will. Uh, they're able to sense pace, line depth, and feel of their stroke in their body during the putting preparation and during the actual stroke. So uh, if you have any comments on, on what uh, my original opening statement and anything that Clint has, and then I want you to, um, maybe to, to touch on a little bit about the statement I just made now. Okay, that that, that was a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, all right. So, so here's what I well, would say. Well, let me go back. Okay, go okay. ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, if you're going to simplify it, please go ahead. Yeah, what I was going to say is let, let's let's break this down into into really a couple of components. Let's talk about the first part of the statement. What most golfers do, what especially our high handicap golfers do when they get to the golf course uh, or during the week when they practice, they're spending very very little time on the putting green. They're going up, they're grabbing a, a bucket or so of balls, and they're hitting shot after shot. And more often than not, they're not really practicing with any sort of purpose they might go and chip a little bit and and so forth so that's what i'm saying is people think that they're going to improve dramatically their golf game by hitting hundreds of golf balls every time they go to the practice tee what's your thoughts there is that a true statement and a fair statement do you think based on what you've seen uh or or do you feel differently no i i first of all can you hear me can you hear me okay sorry i, I was having some technical difficulty there when, uh, when you asked first question so okay I, yeah I, I would i would tend to agree with that statement in my experience people generally don't believe either a that they really have problems in putting or b or possibly both that solving problems in putting will lead to lower scores with the same return on investment as striking the ball better now that right. statement in and of itself might actually be true. There is a tremendous amount of ROI that can be had by striking the ball better, hitting more greens in regulation. 
The problem is mm-hmm. the the amount of work and effort that it takes to actually get any return on investment into those areas is gigantic compared to the effort required to get some return on investment in putting. And so, as a general rule, I would say that that, that I agree with that. Players, amateur golfers, don't tend to to believe they have a big putting problem, um, or they don't they don't think that working on their putting will help them. That would be how I would answer the first part of that. Okay. Now, let me let me um, sort of morph into the second part, if you will. Um, and and I, generally, I think you agree with what Clint said, so I, I won't go back on that and, and, and repeat it. But as I was mentioning in the second part that I read out, is that most of the great putters out there have um, different styles, whether it be their grip, their stroke, even putter designs. We see all kinds of different putter designs um, from the traditional uh, models that we used to see uh, years ago during the Palmer and Nicholas era uh, and, and others. Um, but one of the things that I think a lot of people, and, and this is what I was really going through, and I, and I wanted to sort of elaborate so you'd understand a little bit better what I'm, what I'm getting at, is we use two parts of our brain. We use the left side of our brain is more for um, uh, our thought process, not analytically, but to um, we use things for dreaming or, or, or that sort of thing. Our right side is what actually gets the job done. It's when we actually process um, our thoughts and organize them in such a way that we're able to uh, perform a function. And I think what happens is, and my point that I was trying to make is better putters are able to organize their thoughts in such a way that when, it, when they get over the, the golf ball and they're ready to execute that putt, now they're thinking about how do I get this job done? What do I need to do? They're not thinking uh, about anything else but executing the stroke that they've uh, decided that is best to, to uh, accomplish their task. So what I'm saying is, is that a fair statement as well, do you think, or do you have some other uh, thoughts? I think it's fair, but it might be a bit simplified. Um, and, and here's what okay. I mean by that. You're, it, it's true, in my opinion, that great putters have this this innate, well, not innate ability, but they have this wonderful ability to kind of separate left brain, right brain, right? And and, and left right. brain can do all the imagination and can do all the analysis, uh, not analysis, but all the feeling and all the all that stuff. And then the right brain can produce a stroke that matches all that. But there's one thing that's left out right. of that that I think most people don't understand is great putters are able to do that a lot in part because their strokes allow the ball to do what their left brain sees it doing. And one of the problems that a lot of amateurs have is from stroke to stroke to stroke, it doesn't do the same thing. And so they may imagine it wonderfully, and then the ball doesn't go anywhere or do anything like they imagined. And their answer to solving that is to get the right brain involved. And so now instead of the right brain just doing what the left brain sees, the right brain's trying to solve a problem because it didn't do what it thought it was that they thought it was supposed to do on the last stroke. And so, I don't think that great putters are necessarily born with this ability to separate, and bad putters aren't. Certainly, that may be the case in a few in a few instances. Rather, I think great putters build putting strokes that do the same thing 
as a general rule, time and time and time again, and that allows their right brain to stay out of the way. Right. Amateur golfers don't have that stroke, and that's why the two get intermixed. That's the way I see it anyway. Right. Well said. No, and and you're exactly right. And and a lot of people that are listening might understand and say, well, that that sounds, you know, a little complicated. I don't understand. You know, I just want to be able to putt better. And in its simplest form, that's what we all want to do. But when you understand what goes into um, the thought process and understanding how the ability to be able to use the senses that you're given to execute the shots, um, and and, uh, this applies obviously elsewhere as well, not just on the putting green, but we're going to talk specifically about the putting tonight. So, so Clint, I want to I want to go to you now again. Um, we know that. Yeah, let me weigh, let me weigh back course, in here. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Is it what both of y'all are saying is perfectly fine, but on the other hand, you you have to free up the ability to to feel the putt. And what I find is a lot of people stay so mired down in the technical aspects of how they move the putter head, do they use their hands, do they use their arms, and it it comes to a point to where you have to show a person that their putting mechanics are good enough to free up that part of their brain not to be involved. Uh, And so all this right brain, left brain is a wonderful thing, but until they're convinced that their mechanics are good enough, they'll never spend enough time trying to learn how to have that ability to let the, the, the one side of their brain take over to where they can feel the stroke and, and see the ball rolling uh, because they just don't turn loose of that aspect of the technical things. That's why I think you see them go to the driving range and bang drivers all afternoon. They're trying so hard to improve their technical aspects of their game is they forget that they really need to learn how to play and use what they already have. You know, I'll guarantee you that this weekend at Memorial, the person that hits their third shots the best is going to win. Yep. Okay? And if everybody out there would take time to analyze what they'd hit the majority of their third shots with, and both of y'all know what it is, it's their wedges and their putters, whoever's the most successful with those clubs at Muirfield is going to win. Not the person that drives it in the fairway more often, not the person that hits more greens in regulation, but the guy that hits the third shots the best is going to win. And therefore, that's that chipping and putting. And the amateur players just don't have enough time in their day to work on, and like I like the return on investment idea. They just can't get more, can't spend 20 hours to hit one more fairway. And so, therefore, we have to, as instructors, try to help people free up their mechanics and in where they'll have time and effort to work on the, the kind of the, the touch and feel aspects of, of putting. Right. You know, you're exactly right. And, and, and I don't want anyone listening to misunderstand the, the point that I was making. Um, I don't want suddenly everybody to go out there and, and become overly analytical and things. Uh, that's not at all. What I was right. simply, the point I was trying to make was that this is what differentiates the really good putters from sort of the mediocre putters is they're able to differentiate what part of the brain they're using at a specific time uh, in that moment, 
And what happens is, and, and we all have seen this, not just even in the putting stroke and, and everything, you'll get somebody that'll get on the practice tee and they'll look out there, they'll pick their target, and they know what shot, they've maybe got their seven iron in hand, they know it's uh, maybe 150 or 160 yard shot. And once they get over the ball, all these thoughts will start popping in their head. Well, if I got enough club, if I, you know, am I, if, is my grip right? And, and that's what I'm saying is the professionals have a point in time that they've analyzed what they need to do, and then they're able to flip that switch and now execute the shot that they've made that decision on. And this is where most people get into trouble. And you're right, Clint. Um, you know, we don't want golfers going out in the golf course, putters or otherwise, or, or out on the range, um, you know, thinking a thousand different thoughts. We want to try and isolate, isolate it down to as few as possible, maybe even just a trigger or two. But I think when people understand what part of the process does what and how it works and how it comes into play, over time, if they apply themselves, these skills will become more natural to them. And this is what's happened with a lot of the professionals is over time and practice. Um, but we're faced with a different beast because most people don't have, you know, eight hours a day to go out and work on their golf game. They might be lucky if they've got eight hours a week to commit to their golf game. So we have to find a way of breaking and bridging that difference. And obviously, I think, as Clint, you've talked about, and Brandon, I know you've talked about uh, many, many times on the Coach's Corner panel, is what happens on the putting surface can greatly affect the outcome of your golf game. Um, because you can get to the green in two, but if you three putt on a par four, you've now bogeyed. Uh, or on a par three, you've double bogeyed. So that can certainly get those numbers to go up. Clint, I want to come back to you because I, I wanted to give you a chance to, to respond to, to that earlier comment. And, and this sort of, I think, goes to what you were talking about a little bit. Um, as I was starting to say, we know that the stroke, uh, stroking the ball, of course, is important, but also how we perceive uh, our putt is equally critical to success. Um, in other words, if we feel, as an example, if we feel that the putt is longer or shorter than it really is, the chances of making it are greatly reduced. So how do we help golfers? Uh, that becomes a distance issue and obviously falls into feel. So how do we get our our weekend golfers or our, you know, a couple of month, uh, times a month golfer to understand and, and get a better distance control on the putting surface? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that I have found success with over the years is, you know, we all have benchmarks in our, in our golf swing, right, in our golf game. We, we, we know how far we hit a 7-iron. We know how far we hit a 5-iron. We, we have benchmarks that we work with to, to try to determine – okay, what club am I going to hit for this distance? Well, obviously in putting, we're using the same club when we get up on the putting green. But I try to teach people how to develop benchmarks in their putting stroke. And we take those benchmark strokes, and we go to the practice green that day. Now, we all know that there's some differences in practice greens in a regular course, whatever, but it still gives us something to work with. So... I've always used a right toe benchmark. I go out on the putting green, I take the putter back to my right toe, let it go through and find out how far it rolls today. Those conditions change. And so from day to day, I now have a benchmark stroke that I can figure out, well, today that benchmark stroke rolled on this wet green 20 step, you know, 20 feet. Uh, yeah. Tomorrow it may be 30. 
but I know I have some sense of feel now of distance based on my benchmark stroke. Now, I've worked it down into three benchmarks, right toe, past the right toe, inside the right toe. So I work all three of those benchmark strokes today, and I know how that ball reacts and how the ball reacts on the green based on those length of strokes. So when I go out to play, I've got a 30-footer, I step it off. Well, I know that my benchmark stroke on flat ground was 20. I'm a little bit downhill, using some ideas on how to how to kind of hone that down, and then I work worked it into my benchmark stroke. Go a little past it. I'm 30 feet. I've got to go a little past it. That gives me sense of pace and speed. But those things I right. want to remind people: those things change every day. So that's what we used to call home court advantage. You kind of you kind of knew. But I've, that's what I've always had success with, with people that you work on how hard, you know, pace. Have something you can fall back on that gives you a sense. I'm, you know, I hit a 7-iron 155 yards. Well, if it's uphill or downhill, I have to adjust, right? I want right. people to be able to do the same thing in their putting strokes. Have that benchmark stroke. If it's uphill, downhill, then make proper adjustments on a little shorter or a little bit longer. So that, that's the way I've found success in helping people get a sense of pace and speed is try to develop the same benchmark ideas with their putting stroke as they do with their, their full swing. Yeah, and that's a great point because, you know, uh, we see a lot of um, of our weekend golfers or our high handicap golfers, and they'll get out in the putting uh, surface, and more often than not what we'll see them do is they'll putt to you know they'll go on one side of the green and they'll putt to the fringe on the other side um Mm -hmm. you know to work on their lag putting or you know they'll pace off three feet from the from the cup or five feet or ten feet whatever the case is and they'll putt so they'll practice a 10 foot putt but they really don't practice the actual stroke itself as you're pointing out creating a benchmark so then saying if i take the club back this distance on average how far is the ball going to go today and Correct. that's a great point that you bring up. Um, and, and again, you've, you've created three bench uh, marks, if you will. Um, so that gives you uh, options. And obviously, in between each of those benchmarks, different lengths of putts are going to fall in there. And it's just a matter of making slight adjustments. But Correct. what we often see, right? And Yeah, exactly. And what we often see with a lot of our, our club golfers is they'll stab at the ball. So what they'll do is they'll take the, the, the putter face back, pretty much the same distance every time but if it's a longer putt they'll sort of jerk and stab at the ball to make it go farther or they'll sort of put on the brakes because they're afraid that well I'm, I'm getting too much momentum or speed with the putt so I've got to slow down and that just creates a whole lot of problems and, and really what you're saying uh, Clint is that by having these benchmarks you know that if you take given you know the same rhythm of stroke the putter face back to those different areas or benchmarks that you've created, you can pretty much be assured within very minimal variance that you're going to stroke the putt those different get distances that you've tested out earlier on, correct? Very well said, Ted. Very well said. Thanks. <laughs> well, that's the first on the Coach's Corner panel. Clint, uh, Clint, <laughs> Clint gave me praise for something I said. Um, yeah, man, very well you, said. my friend. <laughs> I, and listen, I, I pay attention too. I, I always feel you know you've got to learn something here uh, as there well you. as teach something. So um, always learning. Um, Brandon, I want to ask you something here. I, I want to read something out, and then I want to give you uh, an opportunity to 
to, to give your thoughts or expand on this. Um, and, and, and this is referring to uh, eyes on the target. Um, Jordan Spieth has been making uh, this particular exercise very popular because he actually uh, has done this in competition. Um, and, and starting about three feet from the cup on a straight putt, instead of looking at the ball during the sto- stroke, uh, he would focus his eyes, or in, in this case, uh, focus your eyes, on the back of the cup or a small target. And the goal that he's trying to accomplish here is to feel like you're totally connected to the target before you actually uh, make the stroke. Uh, and, and obviously this might feel uncomfortable for some at first, but um, you know, he believes if you stay with it that you'll get the sensation that, that the target almost pulls the ball uh, from your putter into the hole. And sort of as you sense deep target connection, uh, keep increasing the length of putt. Um, so what do you think of that theory? I mean, this is obviously a golfer, a very accomplished young golfer who's won uh, major tournaments, uh, is a, one of the uh, good putters on tour. What do you think of that approach of, of sort of defining a target and, and focusing on that target um, as opposed to um, maybe some other things that golfers tend to, to focus on when they're, when they're uh, over their putter or over the ball with their putter? Yeah, so – so, so I'll start by saying this. As a general rule, it's usually a pretty good policy to be careful to listen to what one of the top ten maybe most talented people on planet Earth with a golf club in their hand are telling you that they do. Uh, but, but because most of us don't have the skill level he has, uh, and when he tries to do something and then we try to do it, we don't get nearly the same result that he gets, and, and we wonder why. And so as a general rule – be careful about that stuff. Um, I would say this, that that theory is actually not, it, it, it's, it's got lots of roots in other sports. And so obviously it's something that's sort of new to the world of golf, at least new on a, you know, on a, on a, a big public scale, if you will. Um, but if you think of other sports, if you're throwing a football, the quarterback's eyes are where? They're on the end point, which is the target, the receiver. If you're throwing a baseball, where are the you know where's the pitcher's eyes? They're on the end point, which is the, the catcher's mitt. Uh, and I could go kind of on and on and on. If you're shooting a hockey puck, you know where are your eyes? They're on the net, the end point, the target. And so that's really not that far from how our brain processes information. Okay, and so right. I would say that theory probably has some some really some really good roots. Uh, I think there's a really good argument that could be made that that could help our ability to use our brain better to assess distance control and pace of the stroke to roll a ball a certain Mm -hmm. distance. Here's the challenge. Jordan Spieth has a putting stroke that will return to the ball the same way even if he doesn't look at it. Most of the golfers that I teach don't have that ability yet. And so if they take their eyes off of it, they might miss it, literally miss it. Um, And so I'm not sure they're going to quite get the benefit out of that drill that Jordan Spieth might. And so I think you Mm -hmm. have to be careful if you have enough skill level to be able to take your eyes off of it and move your head and look somewhere else and the strokes still kind of work normally, then I think there's probably some some uh, merit, some merit to that to idea, at, right? At least in practice, right? To try to, to to try to work on some speed control. I would worry that if that if a lot of 
a lot of the golfers I teach anyway, Clint may be teaching a different, uh, you know, level of golfer than me, but, but the, back, the the bulk majority of golfers that I teach I think would struggle with that because it might hit anywhere on the face if they're not <laughs> yeah. looking at it. Yeah, and, um, But yeah, I think and the there's some I merit want... to the idea. Right. The reason I wanted to throw that in there is, you know, one of the other problems that I see, and, and, and again, this is not to, to criticize uh, you know, the magazines and things like that. But we see a lot of this happening, uh, you know, and I'm going to throw them out there, but uh, a lot of the mainstream golf magazines will have uh, various tips like that from the pros. And it, it's great, but as you said, if they're not accomplished uh, with the first part of the skill, and that is returning that, that putter face uh, back to the ball the same every time, then to try some of these different drills, they're just going to make it worse and become more frustrated, I believe, anyways. And I think this adds to, you know, we, everybody gets their, you know, their monthly magazine coming in and they're flipping through to the, to the, the uh, lesson T, if you will. And, and again, I'm not cr- trying to criticize anybody, but sometimes I think that we have to understand that sometimes the people that we're um, doing these articles for or giving these drills for may not be accomplished enough uh, yet to be able to, to master them the way that some of the pros do. So we have to be careful, and you, you raise a very good point about that, Brandon, and I think you're exactly right. I think that uh, it is an interesting drill, and it may work, but it's not something that can be sort of broadcast generally uh, in the golfing public. There's only a select few that may be able to do that successfully, as Jordan does. Um, Clint, I want to, uh, sort of along this lines, I want to go somewhere else, uh, with this, and, and this is more under the optical obstructions, if you will. And you know, in today's putter market, of course, we have a huge assortment, not only of styles, um, but even among some of the most popular uh, putters out there, have optical alignment aids. So it can be anything from a simple line to circles to squares, triangles, you know, contrasting colors, and so forth. Um, so there's a lot of, as they say, a lot of visual eye candy, uh, and and I personally believe they might look great on the shelf, but when you're looking down, it, I can see how many of the average golfers can be very easily distracted. Um, and if you take the previous drill, I think that that sort of makes a very good case why it wouldn't work if you've got a putter head that's you know got two different, three different colors and a bunch of lines or circles on it. What is your thoughts with some of the alignment aids? Is it, is it more for show, or are there real benefits, or does it make it more confusing for a lot of the golfers out there? What do you think about that? Well, I, I think it could be all of the above. I mean, um, what I would, I would like to see on a putter myself okay, is I want some lines on the putter to help me keep the putter face square to my intended line at address. Now, if I got that, then I want those lines to simply be an alignment aid to where I can get the, the the ball on the sweet spot of the putter, which you both know sometimes is not in the middle of the putter where that line's at. Uh, and I would highly right. encourage people to determine where their sweet spot of the putter is. Don't trust that line in the middle of the putter. Um, right find it yourself and every guy professional in America could show you where it's at. They know how. And mm-hmm. at that point, everything else to me 
becomes a distraction on me trying to watch all that stuff go back straight and square. Mm-hmm. You know, so it can be helpful for lining the putter up, but then if I don't turn that loose, it becomes a distraction for me making a free and, and uncomplicated mechanical putting stroke. Because if I try to start making all those dots and lines and stuff do what it's supposed to do, then I'm really thinking my way through that stroke versus feeling through it. And that's where a lot of these things, I think, become distractions is they try to make those things, the lines and the dots and everything, make them do what they're supposed to do versus focusing on making that free-flowing stroke like we've talked about tonight already. So if they Mm. understand that those things are simply for alignment, not for stroke guidance, I think we have we have something that works. But if the, anything that you'd make into a stroke guidance is going to be a distraction and not be very helpful. Yeah, yeah, you're you're exactly right. And and that's what I'm saying is you know there's a lot of great putters out there, and we we've seen um, whether you've you know been down to the the PGA merchandising show each year, and you see a lot of the the, the new products that are coming out, and there's some very interesting, uh, very creative designs, um, but Personally, I find them at times, even for myself, to be more distracting um, from what I'm trying to do on the putting surface because I'm so busy looking at all the, the different lines and, and the curvature of the putter, and you know, especially on the on the trailing end, and it, 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 it's 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 pulling my eye away from where I want it to be, and that's one of my concerns that I have. Sometimes I think, in like anything in life, I think simpler sometimes is better. Um, another great thing, and Brandon, I want to go back to you now, is about feeling the weight. And one of the things that a lot of great providers will, will tell you is that they can actually feel, you know, we always hear about this, uh, you know, feeling the weight of the putter head. Uh, and, and that's something that they feel when they're, you know, when they're doing their pendulum strokes. They're, fe- they're actually feeling the weight um, and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of poor putters tend to push or even flick the handle to create that mo- motion. So it's not a very f- uh, fluid or smooth uh, stroke that they're making. It's, it's a jabbing stroke or a pushing stroke. And what do you think about a- as, a, as an option when you're working with some of your students, and maybe this is something you do, about actually having them stroke the putter with their eyes closed to feel that sensation? What, do you, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think a lot of times that would probably be of benefit to them. Uh, but the, the, challenge, the challenge is I think the minute they open their eyes, that probably goes away because they kind of, you know, whether whether it's out of fear um, of mishitting the putt or whether it's out of a learned habit, you know, to have that jab or that pull or push or whatever you're talking about, that's in there whether you like it or not. And, and so, you know, when they close their eyes, they turn off that fear because they can't see it, right? Uh, but, but, I, but I think the minute they open their eyes, it's probably going to come right back. And so, you know, in a practice stroke or something of the like, I, I don't think that's a bad – there's no way I think that could hurt you. I'll, let me put it that way. Right. Um, you know, to, to, to work on that. I'm not sure it's going to solve a whole lot of your problems, for the folks that you're talking no. about that struggle with those, I don't think it's going to solve too many problems, but there's no way it can hurt. 
Well, I think the, the, the point really of the discussion tonight is, is engaging uh, or even in some cases disengaging some of our senses because a lot of times our eyes will lie to us. And sometimes, as Clint, you talked about uh, a few moments ago uh, uh, earlier in the discussion about really feel. You want people to feel uh, a little bit more and not get caught up in the mechanics a little bit. So, you know, what are your thoughts? I want to ask you the same question is what are your thoughts? Uh, and again, I'm not saying it's going to cure if somebody's making a bad stroke, but getting them to focus on the actual feel of the putter and putter head in their hands, as opposed to sometimes allowing their visual cues uh, to dictate the, the proper stroke. What, what do you think about the, the, you know, closing their eyes and just getting the, the, the student to, to sort of feel the momentum of the putter head, uh, obviously in a practice session, just to, to understand and feel that weight of the putter. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think Brandon, Brandon's uh, right. Um, it, it's, it, it can't hurt them. I never really use that drill that much to get people to feel the putter. I've always used a closed-eye drill to get them to finish their stroke, not be so impact-oriented. I didn't want them to be able right. to see the putter make contact with the ball. I wanted them to stroke through it. So I never really use that drill much for them to feel the weight of the putter, uh, more for the person to, to try to get a sense of the putter going on past the ball versus being so much ball-oriented in their, in their stroke. And, again, I use it more or less for a, a cure of the decel. I had a putter that gets up there and just mm -hmm. stops. I, I want to take the visual out of it to where they'll, they'll hit on through. So I, I agree with Brandon. I don't think it can hurt. Uh, it's a simple drill. Uh, that, that we've all used for probably different uh, aspects of a person needing to practice some. So I, I just don't think it will hurt anybody, but I'm, I'm not real sure whether it would accomplish quite so much. I've always tried to, to work with a person's style of grip and particularly grip right. pressure in order to be able to feel the putter head more. And I think that's why you see so many varied grips and and ideas on grip pressure because we all have a little different sense in our hands and, and nervous system. And so, therefore, how mm -hmm. we hold the putter uh, versus how somebody else does may give us a better chance of feeling the weight of the putter and also work with a person on, on the length of their putter and where mm -hmm. they grip the putter. Would I find right. more successful? on them feeling the weight of the putter butter more than more than just a drill yeah and you actually um led into my next point which was really uh letting it go because uh, one of the the problems and this happens obviously in, in all parts of the golf swing but particularly on on the putting surface is a, a lot of our, our club golfers get um too much tension in their hands and in their forearms and they're, you know, they've got a death grip on just about every club in the bag. Um, right. What are some, some drills that, that you do, Clint? And then, Brandon, maybe there's some different things that you do uh, to help get that tension out. Because you, you obviously have to, again, be able to feel the stroke. It's a feel uh, as well as, you know, some mechanics there. But primarily it's a feel. How do we help some of our students get that tension out of, the, out of their body to be able to, to have some fluidity in their stroke? Uh, Clint, you go first, and then Brandon. Uh, I've, I use a very simple uh, uh, concept, really, is I want them to take the, the putter, grip it as light as they can grip it and still hold the putter, 
and focus every bit of their attention and success level of the stroke is that the grip pressure doesn't change. That's mm-hmm. So in, in a series of putts, you know, 10 or 12, however many you want to, I don't care whether they make contact with the ball. I don't care whether it goes in the hole, whether it rolls the right distance. The only level of success is they did not change the grip pressure. It did right. not change. And therefore, you can find, again, I use that term again, a baseline for their grip pressure that they can maintain and feel comfortable with control. So we start out very light, and we move, and if that feels a little sloppy to them and they can't not hold it tighter, we increase the beginning pressure slightly until we find that beginning pressure that they can, that they can go and duplicate every time part of their setup, part of their putty stroke, is I have to find my grip pressure, and the whole idea is for them, that grip pressure to not change throughout the stroke. And now that's, mm-hmm. that's easier said than done, mind you. I understand that. <laughs> okay? But <laughs> right. it has to be a training portion of it somewhere, and if we begin that and we get them to understand that that's the purpose of their stroke, we might be able to work that into their entire, in their playing routine that once they get set and they know what they're doing, their entire purpose here is just don't change the grip pressure. Again, get right. them focused on the feel of their stroke versus the mechanics of the stroke. Right. Well said. Um, Brandon, what are your thoughts on, on that? Uh, again, this is something that happens in, in all areas of the golf game, uh, but particularly on the putting surface. Uh, a lot of our golfers get a lot of tension in their grip. Uh, is there anything specific that you do uh, to work on that with your students? You know, there's, there's, two, there's two things. I'll share with you briefly why I think we see a lot of that tension, uh, and then I'll tell you kind of how I try to combat it. I, I, it goes back to something I said earlier. I think that tension comes from them trying to control it I, because it doesn't do the same thing every time. One time it goes too far, one time it goes too short, one time it goes left, one time it goes right. No different than, than, a, than a driver or an iron out of the fairway. And they, they, they answer that problem by trying to control the stroke. And, and at, a, at a conscious right. level, that sort of makes sense, right? You know, if, if the ball is right. to the right, then I will just control the putter head on the next one to make it not go right. Not quite that simple in golf. But I think that's where that tension comes from. Um, and, and, and frankly, the worse they are at the worse they are at doing the same thing over and over again, then the worse they're going to be with tension. I, I have a series of heavy putters, and so I kind of made a couple of putters. Just took some old putters off the shelf. Um, I have one that is really, really like almost sledgehammer heavy. Not really. It's not a nine-pound sledgehammer, but it's really, really heavy. (laughs) It's so heavy that if they just get it moving, it moves itself. Mm -hmm. And so that I can kind of get them to start to feel what it's like to just rock back and forth with their shoulders or their hands and arms or however you want to say it and and just let a putter kind of move. And then I might go to one that's sort of in between. I have about three putters that are sort of weighted progressively from heavier down to standard normal putter weight. Um, 
and I'll kind of take that might be a little five-minute drill where, you know, we, we make just a few real, not hitting golf balls or anything, but just a light few strokes with the heavy one and then try their best to to recreate that same feel with one that's a little lighter and then a little lighter until they're finally back to the normal putter. Uh, I love the grip pressure thing that Clint talked about. I, 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 I find myself saying that a lot, but I've never – never really approached it in that way, asking them to think about not changing grip pressure. I think that's brilliant, and I plan on using it tomorrow. So thank you for that, Clint. But, but that's kind of how, how I approach that. I, I go the the, commi- the commission address is? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't, don't hold your breath on that check. It works much, you know, but, uh, but anyway. So that, that, that's kind of how I do it. I, just, I made myself a little series of putters and – and it tends to work well for people. Right. Well, well said. And, and, yeah, they may have trouble delivering that across state lines. So yeah, uh, no. I, wouldn't hold, I, wouldn't hold up, I wouldn't hold up for that one, Clint. You know, Clint it was I, worth a try, though. You know, that's right. Always worth the, worth the effort. Um, you know, Clint, uh, listening to both of you talk uh, about uh, that and, and both great answers, I mean, there is really, uh, you know, because we all are individuals, not just as instructors but even as students, you know, what works for one may not necessarily work for another. So it's good to have, and this is why, uh, again, I can't emphasize enough, one of the reasons why I hold these coaches' corner panels is because it's an opportunity not just to teach the students out there, but a way that we can all learn from one another. You know, Clint, you might have an idea this show that, you know, as Brandon just pointed out, is something that, that's given him pause for thought. He's thought about it before, but maybe not actually put uh, it into action. And, uh, you know, now he's going to do that. So that's really one of the purposes. But, but Clint, what I was going to say is I, I go back to when you talked about benchmark, uh, about making those benchmarks uh, for distance. And I see that really, that in itself could be a great way to help with tension as well. And let me give you an example of why I say that. You know, as I pointed out earlier as well, you know, a lot of, uh, of our club golfers and high handicappers get out there and, you know, as they take the club back and then they go to stroke the putt, depending on the distance that they're trying to hit it, sometimes they'll slow their stroke down because they think they're going to go too, too hard. Uh, and that automatically causes them to, to create tension uh, or speed up even. So, they're, again, they're jabbing and they're stabbing at the, at the ball. And I think that by having that benchmark, as you suggested, I think could also have a double uh, benefit, not only in engaging the distance, but having a more fluid uh, and relaxed putting stroke because they know how far the ball is going to go. They're not guessing at it, and they're able to execute those distances with a little bit more uh, confidence. So I could see that uh, you know, exercise as well uh, possibly benefiting uh, you know, the tension aspect as well. So uh, food for thought and... Um, you know, I think that's something, either way, it's going to benefit, um, you know, our club golfers out there. All so right. let's wrap this up because we've got a, just a couple of minutes uh, left. If you had, uh, and, and I'm going to start with you, Clint, and then, and then Brandon. If you had a student tomorrow that's been struggling with their putter, uh, they're just not making their two, three putting most of the time, particularly three putting, What's the conversation going to start out, and what are you primarily going to be looking at with that particular student? 
Well, if I have a have a student that that's coming in, they're three putting a lot, they're just not making anything or whatever. My first approach is going to be, and, and I truly believe this, is most three putts do not come from missing a three footer. It comes from being three foot away, and that's because you're not lag putting very well. Uh, distance right. control that we've talked about here tonight. I want to take them to the putting green. I want to see you hit a 30-footer. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what I want to see first. I mean, why why are we having, you know, a, a tension-laid second putt uh, when I'm on the green from 20, 25 feet? So I'm going to focus on that distance control because I truly believe that, that that most players that play this game on a regular basis can kind of get the ball to move towards the target. It comes down to what Brandon said, one time is too hard, next time is too short. You know, those things yeah. are what we've talked about tonight to start developing some control for distance that, that you can get some of those no-stress two-putts uh, and not, not put so much pressure on a three- and four-footer. Now, if you're just not making right. three- or four-footers, then I'm going to really look to see their alignment and their setup uh, to see from the root problem, are you really aimed where you think you are? Uh, so those would be the first things I would uh, would encourage them to do. Right. Well said. Uh, and some very sound advice from one of the best in the short game. Uh, Brandon, what about you? You've got a, a customer that shows up at the at the course tomorrow that's uh, um, having similar problems, struggling, you know, three-putting a lot, just not able to, to, to groove a good putting stroke. What are some of the things and, and that you're going to be looking at, and, and how's the discussion going to start off? Yeah, yeah. So I, I evaluate I evaluate almost every putter the same. I talk about putting being a combination of three skills: um, speed control or distance control, start line control, and green reading. Uh, and if and if you look at if you look at a formula, A plus B plus C equals a made putt. Um, then I need to evaluate each of those pieces individually to find out where some of the deficiencies are going wrong. For example. Um, they, they interact with each other, right? If your start line control is off, mm -hmm. if you pull every putt you hit, then your green reading will have to compensate for that error. You may not even know you're doing that, right? But, but that happens. If your green reading is off, then your speed control may end up compensating for that error. If you under-read every putt, then the only way to make it is to hit it harder or start it offline. And so you can see how those three kind of work together. And so I evaluate everybody in those three areas to try to find out what which of the three is most deficient and then sort of start mm -hmm. there. Um, and then where I go or how I fix those things could, is literally is going to be a book. Um, but but right. that, that's how I evaluate, <laughs> the, you know, in its most basic form. I evaluate them on those three skills, green reading, start line control, and distance or speed control. Well said, um, and and that was a great plug, by the way, for for your new book. So let's uh, <laughs> Did you as like we wrap that? up the coaches. That, as as we, kinda, yeah, that was flowed, that was perfect. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was perfect. I, I love it. Um, so on that note, we we got to wrap up coaches' corner. So let me just uh, uh, give you guys a, an opportunity. And, and Brandon, since uh, you finished off here, uh, let the folks first off uh, know how they can reach out to you if they want. Uh, maybe they want to come and get help with their putting or other parts of their game. And then just give us a quick update uh, when you uh, forecast uh, the book being available. Yeah, so everything I have out there, email, website, social media, anything and everything 
It's just my last name, Stukesbury Golf. You know, at Stukesbury Golf, StukesburyGolf.com, YouTube handle at Stukesbury Golf, any of that you can get me through Stukesbury Golf at gmail.com. Uh, you know, however, it's all there. I encourage you to check it out. Certainly ask questions or, or reach out if you need. Uh, my goal for the book is to have a fall release. Um, certainly by the end of the year is the uh, is the hard date. If all goes well, I should have it out sometime this fall. But I would say, let's just say in 2018, and we'll leave it at that. Perfect. Sounds good. And uh, we'll be looking forward to that. And, and keep uh, keep me updated here, uh, Brandon, as uh, as things uh, progress with the book, so that we can uh, let the the listeners know. For those that uh, want to get their hot little hands on a copy, uh, we'll make sure that that happens. Uh, Clint, how can the folks reach out to you? And and any final thoughts? Uh, as always, Brandon, Ted, it's been a pleasure uh, having a discussion with you. It's been great. Um, they can always get me at clintgolf001 at yahoo.com. Been that way for a long time, Perfect. so shoot me an email, and I'll uh, I'll respond back to them, and uh, we'll go from there. That sounds good. Um, well, guys, again, I want to thank you very much for, for joining me on the Coach's Corner panel. Unfortunately, James Kyle uh, wasn't able to join us tonight, but you guys uh, – as always, did such a fantastic job. Uh, it was uh, it was a great uh, a great episode of Coach's Corner, and I appreciate it very much. And uh, and Clint, hopefully the rain will pass on ease on by as the weekend comes through, and and give you a little break uh, there in South Carolina. I know it's been I know it's been a little wet here recently, so hopefully uh, you'll be able to get out and enjoy a, a sunny weekend. But guys, thank you very much for joining me on Coach's Corner, and I look forward to you uh, uh, coming on next time. All right, good night, everybody. Thanks so much, Ted. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, that was uh, two of the the guys on the Coach's Corner panel, Clint Wright and Brandon Stukesbury. Uh, Again, I want to thank them for joining me tonight. We talked a little bit about putting, and uh, hopefully you guys uh, pulled away some some great tips. And uh, you can always reach out to those guys uh, if you want to get more information. Uh, or you can certainly email me, and I'll be more than happy to relay their information to you if you want to uh, uh, reach out. But uh, glad they were able to go on the show. And again, uh, uh, hopefully everything's all right with James, and we'll we'll get him on here next time. Uh, I've got a great uh, guest coming on here the second half. He's been uh, on many, many times on the show, and uh, he's coming back to uh, plug in another part of, of the discussion. He's uh, uh, one of the best in my opinion in the golf fitness industry and fitness in general and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him and then I'm going to bring him on and we're going to talk about tonight's discussion uh, which of course is is built around the, the theme of being able to last longer on the golf course you know a lot of times we get out there and uh, you know as we start to uh, you know get things going and we get around the turn if you will and get into hole number 12 13 sometimes we're losing a little bit of steam in some cases and it's hard for some golfers to, to finish off those last few holes. So my good uh, special guest and friend tonight, Brett Cohen, uh, is a golf fitness instructor and fitness over 50 authority and uh, the founder of New York uh, or NY Golf Fitness Guru. Uh, he's been involved in the fitness industry for over 17 years. Uh, he specializes in working with golfers and individuals over 50 and is the only trainer in New York uh, to hold two golf fitness certifications, uh, TPI or Titleist Performance Institute and Czech Institute, as well as two fitness certifications, uh, specializing in the mature population 
uh, Functional Aging Institute and National Academy of Sports Medicine. So without uh, further ado, let me bring on my very special guest this evening on Golf Talk Live, uh, Brett Cohen. Good evening, Brett. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, let me ask you the first obvious question. Uh, are you guys getting are you getting rain up there in New York? Yeah, it's been raining for most of April and May. I think I could count on one yeah. hand how many nice sunny days we've had. It seems like everybody's complaining about the rain, and it doesn't look like it's going to let yeah. up anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, it's not, no, not we good were, for the golf. Uh, not. We were, no, we were just talking about that just uh, in the previous segment. Um, you know, of course, we had here in, in Florida, we had uh, – uh, Tropical Storm Alberto just go through, and some areas were hit harder than others, and some areas were lucky and didn't get too much. But uh, it just seems to be uh, traversing up the East Coast and, and then other storms coming in from the Midwest uh, this evening actually coming across, some quite severe. So uh, take care, everybody. I hope you're uh, bundled up and, and relaxed inside, and, and uh, hopefully you're listening to the program. Um, all right, Brett, I'm going to let you uh, start things off here, and I just want to, again, just recap very quickly um, what the, the topic we're going to talk about tonight is uh, lasting, uh, last longer on the golf course. So why don't you open it up and talk about uh, some of the uh, criteria, if you will, some of the keys to uh, doing anything longer, obviously, is, in, is uh, dependent on the following criteria. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, so we have a very relaxing topic to talk about tonight. We're going to explore what recovery and regeneration <laughs> is. <laughs> Yeah, and how to help golfers that are listening in to last longer on the golf course, so how those two pieces fit into each other. Uh, I think it's a really important topic for most amateur golfers to understand, so I want to dedicate um, this episode to creating an awareness that the amateur golfer needs to have a process or a plan in place to help them recover uh, in order to play multiple days in a row. And these are the things that we're going to discuss uh, are the things that they have control over uh, to get the most out of their lessons and their practice and, and enjoy the game as much as they can. Um, and that's what we're going to delve into. What is recovery and regeneration and how they can help them last longer on the golf course. Right. Now, there's some some specific criteria um, that, you know, in anything that we do, whether it's golf or, or off the golf course, um, talk about some of the things that um, – there's really sort of three key areas um, that, that you touch upon here. Just maybe just briefly brush a, a stroke, if you will, on, on all three of them, and then we'll, we'll get into uh, a little bit more uh, detail. Yeah, so first I want to define uh, what recovery and regeneration actually means and both a mindset uh, as well as the mm-hmm. physical strategies that help you get the most out of your body. So you could think of recovery and regeneration, and these two terms kind of go hand in hand as a vacation from stress. Um, Anyone that's played golf multiple days in a row can probably attest to the fact that this can be stressful both physically as well as mentally. So I know the golfers that I work with during the prime months of May through October, um, many of them are going to get out there and play two to three days in a row. Uh, But most most of the people listening are not training themselves physically for such rigorous activity in the first place, and they don't have strategies to recover from that day-to-day play. So first, the recovering generation starts with understanding the fact that golf is, in fact, an athletic event, and the participants, mm-hmm. regardless of their skill level, are, in fact, athletes, right? It doesn't matter what your handicap is. If you're going to play an athletic event, 
two or three days in a row, you're an athlete. And if you want to perform right. like an athlete, you need to do the things that, that athletes do. And professional athletes not only train for the game, but they also have clear and definable habits to help them prepare, perform, and recover. And, and most amateurs don't know what those things are, or if they do, they're not employing those, those strategies. You know, Brett, we've talked about on the show, and, and well said, you're exactly right. You know, we've talked on the show many times, you know, there, there's a time issue, um, you know, time restraints. Everybody's busy these days. And we as golf instructors, myself and, and uh, many of the guys that come on the Coach's Corner panel that precedes um, these interview uh, segments, mm. you know, one of the issues that we have is just is getting these folks sometimes just to come out and work on their game. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as you said, you know, golf is not just a game, it's a sport, and which requires physical abilities to, to be able to get into the positions that we want them to do mechanically right. uh, in order to, to perfect and, and work on their golf swing. Uh, we want them yeah. to increase their power, of course, and, and uh, be able to, uh, the repeatability, and obviously, ultimately, we want to do it with such a way of keeping the risk for injury uh, as low as possible. So how right. do we, you know, how do we sort of put this together, if you will, uh, and maybe give us some examples of what we can do uh, to get our uh, golfers, if you will, uh, into a position to, uh, you know, use some of their time to be able to get out and do some of the things that we're going to be talking about. Yeah. So this is now um, post activity. Right? There are certain strategies that. Uh, we've spoken about on the show before. We could we could uh, revisit them today if you like to prepare you for play, and that's basically a little bit of tissue release with uh, a massage stick and a dynamic or active stretching routine. Once you know how to do it, it doesn't right. take very long. You just have to know how to do it. So really, that's that's a ten minute commitment, uh, and it's I'd be hard pressed mm-hmm. for someone to really say they don't have an extra ten minutes. It's even less than 10 minutes if you know what to do. Um, the right. recovery side, you have you have two different types of recovering and generation we're going to discuss. We have both the passive and active recovery. So passive basically means you don't have to do anything. Uh, you're just going to be relaxing. That's why I said at the, at the top of the show, it's a, it's a relaxing topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are right. active recovery methods that do take time, but uh, it could be as little as 10 to 20 minutes, and that's at the end of your day. And then we're just talking about the physical part. So physically, it's a process of you know, of um, regeneration or repairing the muscle and other soft tissue that's been damaged from exercise and training, right? In this case, golf, which is a rotary mm-hmm. power sport. So um, one of the active recovery methods is to restore this living tissue by uh, doing a process known as self-myofascial release or, or rolling. Uh, I know we've mentioned that on the show before, and that's when you're using sure. devices such as massage sticks and uh, rubber balls and other foam roller devices to massage the body. And at the end of a long mm-hmm. day, what that does is it just helps the muscles relax. It helps release uh, uh, sore muscles. It helps speed recovery, releases tension and stress. Uh, flushes out toxins from the system. And once you learn a, a basic routine, you could do that in 10 minutes. And the best time to do it is at the end of the day um, when activity is stopped and the muscles tend to get stiff again. 
So it helps with uh, right. the healing process through the night. You know, so it does take time, but a minimal amount of time. You could you could do it when you're proficient in, in 10 minutes, and uh, it'll go a long way. Explain a little bit about reloading, um, what you mean by that. For, for people that are not obviously in the fitness industry, and, and what do you mean by that? Obviously, um, we understand about regeneration a little bit, but what does it mean by reloading? Yeah. Yeah, so basically they're interchangeable, interchangeable terms. So when we're discussing these uh, active recovery methods, the two basic active recovery methods are going to be the rolling, which we just discussed, mm-hmm. and what's right. known as um, isolated or passive or static stretching, which follows up the rolling. Uh, it can be done in and of itself. Either one of these can be done in isolation, but when they're done together, it's kind of like a one-two punch to help reduce uh, muscle soreness and fatigue. So that aids in the reloading process. Basically, when you're doing that on a regular basis, if you do it after a day of activity, it will keep your muscles fresh and elastic the next day. If you don't, then the chemical byproducts of the activity that irritate the tissue that make you sore just stay stagnant in the body. Um, and then that's why you wake up feeling sore the next day or even the day after that. depends on how much activity you have. That's um, uh, different for everyone. It's known as post-exercise muscle soreness. It can happen really rapidly or it can take up to 48 hours. depends on who you are and how fit you are and how much activity you did. So right. that's really what I mean by reloading. Um, you're, you're resetting the system physically by doing these, these two strategies, these active recovery methods. And that gives you a much better chance of being able to get in position that you want to the next day and not feel like it's going to take you half a round to just get your body moving better. Let's talk about, um, because I, I know, and you've mentioned this many, many times about stretching and, you know, we see golfers going out to the golf course and they're, you know, doing all kinds of funky movements and that, and we're not really (laughs) sure sometimes what they're actually doing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what does a golfer need? What should the, yeah? You know, you know what I'm talking about. You go out there and they're they're yeah. bending over this way and they're doing that. Um, let's talk about some some proper. I mean, I know we don't have the visual component here, but um, you know we can direct yeah. them to your your website uh, after the show that they can see some great examples of, of what we're talking about. But let's talk about some of the things. What should what areas of the body should we be stretching? And, and what key role, uh, obviously, in, in, our, in our golf swing, not so much the mechanical side of things, but how do they sort of help work together with the other areas and muscles um, that we're using in our golf swing? So let's talk about some of the things that we need to do to stretch. Yeah, so you're speaking of now pre-event, right, before you get started, not, not as a recovery, just no. before you get to play. Yeah, so uh, there are yeah, many we can, yeah, we, valid – Yeah. You go into that? Okay. There, there are many valid ways to do what's known as a dynamic-based uh, warm-up. The one that I use for golfers, which is um, on the website as a PDF download, is based on joint motion. So uh, I'm, I'm going to have the golfer move the joints that they need to be moving freely in the golf swing. And that's going to be their ankles, their hips, um, their thoracic spine, the part of the um, spine where the rib cage is, and the shoulders. And they're going to do it in patterns that are relevant to the golf swing. So they, they include rolling the feet in and out, which takes place in the golf swing, uh, moving the pelvis forward and back in rotation, 
um, separating the torso from the hips, etc. There are patterns that are relevant to the swing. In fact, there's a, there's a deep squat in there too. They basically reflect um, the screening movements that are in the TPI level one screen. Um, so they're, they're really requirements for good golf. Um, and once you learn it, it takes less than four minutes. There are other stretches that can be done that are more muscle-based where uh, I'm stretching or trying to elongate muscles that I know I'm going to use in my golf swing um, that are really important are the rotary muscles. So the muscles that connect the neck to the shoulder girdle, which allow the shoulders to rotate underneath a relatively fixed head. Um, most people, those muscles are restricted. They're the, the upper trapezius muscles, the top of the shoulder, and a muscle known as the levator scapular muscle, which attaches your shoulder blade to the cervical spine. Um, they're restricted in most adults these days. Uh, the other ones that are important are the obliques or quadratus lumborum muscles, which are attaching your spine to your pelvis. So when they're restricted, so you would stretch them by moving sideways, right? With a lateral stretch, you typically see right. a lot of golfers right. do that. Uh, those allow you to turn the torso more freely in either direction. So those are really important to stretch as well. Um, hamstrings, uh, the hip flexors, which allow you to gain better control of your pelvis and get your glutes to activate better. Uh, the lats, which allow you to bring your arms overhead. Uh, there's some great stretching routines that you could do holding onto a cart. I know I've mentioned uh, a colleague of mine that that's in Florida that put one together. I think it's excellent. If you're going to use a cart, mine uses just your club. Uh, you don't need anything, but your golf club and it's, uh, it's movement based in that you're going to use those movements in your swing. Mm-hmm. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I know you can't see it, but no, that's you have to use your imagination. Yeah. And, and, and again, we're going to, at the end of the, the segment, we're going to uh, refer everybody, of course, to Brett's um, website, because I know he's got uh, th- this article here that we're going to be talking about tonight uh, is on there. And, um, you know, you can go and, and check out some of the, he's got some great diagrams there to show you some of the things that we're going to be talking about. Now, fast forward a little bit. We've, we've gone out now uh, as a golfer and we've played, you know, maybe two or three rounds this week. Uh, we're going to forget about the rain. We're getting out there anyways. Yeah. We're playing. Uh, and, and you talked about, you know, um, basically creating a post-event stretching. So now we want to avoid some of the soreness after golf. And obviously, as you pointed out a few moments ago, it's a good idea to perform some of these post-event stretchings. Um, so what, again, what major muscles do we, groups do we want to isolate that are used in golf? And how long typically do we want to stretch them for in order to get maximum benefit? Yeah, so the stretching is different in its time frame, but the muscle groups are going to be similar. So okay. the post-event stretching basically works best in this isolated static stretching modality, which basically means you're trying to take, you can't really separate a muscle from the rest of the body, but you're working on a segment of the body in isolation of other movements. Um, and now we're looking to hold that position for a minimum of 20 seconds to 30 seconds. Some people will say in order to get a muscle that's really tight to release, you, you need to do it for a minute. But in all practicality, we're not going to be holding muscles in a stranglehold for minutes. So I'm going to say 20 to 30 seconds 
for each muscle group as a general guideline. And then once again, we're going to look at the muscles in the neck, right? Your, your head is rotating really rapidly to follow the ball. Uh, so most people don't pay attention to that, but you need to stretch the neck to release the tension in the neck. Um, those oblique muscles, the rotary muscles I spoke of before, the low back, just giving your knees a hug by lying on your back helps relax the lumbar erectors of the low back, the hip rotators. Um, as you mentioned, there's posi- uh, pictures of those positions on there, the hamstrings, the hip flexors, and what we call the rectus abdominis or the front of your abdominal wall, what people, we, uh, people would typically think of as the six pack. Those muscles are flexing and helping to rotate the torso rapidly and they should be stretched as well. Right. And, and Brett, you talk about in this article um, about the importance of doing some low intensity exercises uh, or cardio. Um, mm. And, and you refer to, you know, doing some of these things to, to get the blood going. And I want you to explain why that's important to get the blood going. Cause that helps uh, obviously in, in repairing, uh, you know, uh, sore muscles and, and helping them to heal a little bit quicker. Um, but I, I want to give you a little bit of a scenario because, you know, obviously, depending on where you are, uh, a lot of our golf uh, golfers out there, uh, many of the golf courses, just because of the sheer volumes that are on there, uh, don't have uh, don't allow walking. So you're taking a golf cart, um, mm-hmm. but you're still uh, you're still you know swinging the golf club. You're still using a lot of uh, those muscles. Um, how important is it for what we're talking about? in both scenarios for those that are driving the carts uh, around the, the 18 holes and those that are walking, um, is there benefits or disadvantages to either one first off, um, one over the other. And, you know, because I would think, I would imagine that most of our, our golfers that are sitting in a golf cart, other than when they actually execute the golf shot, they're really sitting a lot of time, not getting a lot of good circulation. Yeah. On the other hand, right. somebody that's got a pull cart and they're walking around the course is already walking um, and, and getting uh, some additional exercise. So talk about, you know, from both perspectives, those that are, you know, playing golf courses where a golf cart is required and those that are able to walk, some of the benefits and some of the, the things that they need to, to sort of take heed in on, on either situ- uh, situation. Yeah, uh, great point, great question. And I, I work with golfers that experience both. Um, so when you're walking the course, uh, especially if it's an undulating course, I mean, we could walk like five or six miles, right? Uh, there are right. some people that are not physically in shape to do that. <laughs> That's the whole point, right? right? You need to prepare to be doing that because that in and of itself can fatigue you if you're not fit enough for that part of the activity. It's going to detract from your swing. So you got to focus on that ball and, and, and do what you need to do. Uh, so, Preferably, I would like to see golfers walking, right? When you're walking, you're using sure. your glutes. Uh, you're keeping blood flow. Uh, and then you sh- you really shouldn't need to, to kind of re-loosen up from hole to hole because you're constantly moving. On the other hand, if you're, you're forced to be in a cart, uh, just like anyone that's experienced uh, an activity and then sits right after the activity, and, and I've done that many times, um, once blood flow slows down, things start to harden up and, and you, no matter what kind of shape you're in, you get up and you feel kind of old because you're not moving so well. Um, you would, I would, I would say anyone that's riding 
a cart needs to, to reactivate each time they're getting ready. They need to do something, a stretch, a swing, something that they feel is right. going to help them move better before they get up to the tee. You know, and it could be very simple, yeah, one or I, two stretches, but you got to move again. <laughs> right. Because I, yeah, I can see that being a problem because, uh, you know, just to give you an example, you know, quite often you'll see, uh, you know, golfers that, you know, I've even played with um, over the years that will get out in the golf cart and maybe their last hit on that specific hole. I mean, they've teed off, they're out in the fairway, they've driven up to their ball, they've got three other players that maybe are ahead of them, but they're sitting in the golf cart because they've got, you know, a few minutes, uh, you know, for each. Yeah. So now their, their, their muscles yeah. have kind of cooled down a little bit and I can see that. So uh, you're, you're abdicating then maybe just to at least get out of the golf cart, you know, swing the club, you know, certainly not full speed because you don't want to injure yourself. Um, and you certainly don't want to, uh, you know, to be too much of a distraction, but there's yeah. some good simple exercise that they could do that don't take a lot of time, but just to get those, keep those muscles warm and keep them loose and stretched. Uh, uh, I sense that that's what you're saying, correct? Yeah. Uh, yes. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend continuing to swing the club. As you said, it would be distraction to other players, but there are a couple of simple movements, uh, <clears throat> standing torso rotation with the club out in front, arms extended, trying to keep your hips fixed, right. which is a disassociation pattern. You're not swinging the club, but you're moving the torso and you're creating this pattern that's relevant to the swing. Uh, another exercise that I use a lot of times for golfers that have limited hip mobility, and it's called a stork turn. Uh, you could use a club if you're able to support yourself or hold on to the edge of a cart. And I'll try to describe it as best I can, but you would simply take one foot off the ground and fold the front of your foot where the shoelaces are into the back of your opposite knee standing on a single leg. And then you're going to rotate right. in and out of that hip to lubricate the hip joint, right? Both what we call internal, external rotation, moving in and out of that joint. So then when you go back to your golf swing, your hips didn't stiffen up. And you could do it again with holding onto the cart or using a golf club. Um, very simple strategy that keeps the hip, the hips mobile. So you don't need to be swinging the club to stay warm. There's other things to do if you know what to do. Right. And, and I think really, you know, what we're saying is, you know, I think people get under this, you know, misconception when they hear exercise. I mean, certainly, you know, exercising, having some sort of a uh, an exercise routine, regardless, you know, whether you're playing golf, I think is always good. I mean, we want to keep healthy and shape, uh, you know, as we as we uh, move up the uh, the age ladder, if you will. Right, um, right. <laughs> but I think a lot of people are, are, are thinking, well, you know, I've only got... Uh, a few times that I can get out to the golf course during the week. I don't have a lot of time. And, and really what you're saying here is two things. One, uh, you know, pre-golf, there's lots of great uh, stretches and, and even light exercises that can be done in order to prepare to go out and play. But equally and as, as important is after play or even during play, depending on the circumstance. Again, if you're you know driving in a golf cart most of the round, there's mm-hmm. opportunities to continue to have that movement and stretching and, 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 and muscle relaxing, if you will, that is going to be able to benefit you not only during the round, but after the round as well. Correct? Yeah, totally correct. And in fact, uh, just to, to add a couple of points, if you're 
the guy that's in the cart. You have to be in the cart, and your buddy's getting up to hit. Rather than sit in the cart, get out and do some of these, we're going to call them muscle activations. Uh, do something that's not just going to move blood through the body, but it's going to stimulate the nervous system. Uh, that's part of the benefit of a warm-up, especially an active warm-up, is it's telling the brain we have activity ahead. We're going to ramp our awareness level up. If you go from sedentary to violent swing, your nervous system is just not prepared for that. So that's one thing to add. The other is a success strategy for the after, right? So the topic is recovery regeneration to allow you to last longer. Uh, I know everyone's crunched for time, but we're talking about a 10 to 20 minute commitment. So if you really press for time, you could squeeze it in in 10. Uh, if you have a little bit more time, 20 to be done on the floor, in front of the television. If you want to have the TV on, prefer not to, because this <laughs> is quiet, relaxing time. Sure. And do your rolling and stretching. And what that process does is allows the tissue to heal in a healthy state while you're asleep. And that uh, applies to the question you asked me earlier, the, I think the reloading question you asked me. So that's, right. that's what's happening. Yeah. So it's not a huge well, time. And, and I think, right, right, exactly. And I, and I think it's, it's equally important in addition to this is av- actually having some rest period as well. I mean, you've just spent, you know, three, four, five hours out in a golf course, uh, as you say, in, in an athletic position, and now, you know, you've done your, your post-stretching, but there's also a time for rest, too, because you don't want to overextend the, the, the muscle groups that you've just used, uh, especially if you're planning on playing, as you said, two or three times uh, in a row, uh, or maybe you've gone mm-hmm. for a little short uh, junket to Myrtle Beach or something with your buddies, and you, and you yeah. want to go down and, and play two, three, four rounds. Uh, it's very mm-hmm. important. And also things like, like hydration as well. I know this falls under nutrition, but hydration as well. Mm-hmm is key in muscle recovery and, and muscle soreness because if they're not hydrating properly as they're playing, especially when you get into the hot summers, um, that, that also is going to affect the recovery too, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, muscle recovery, muscle soreness, but uh, more importantly, just having the muscles hydrated uh, uh, is going to allow them to move better because your muscles are made of mostly water and you can't, I know I've said this before on the show, you can't stretch a dry sponge. So if you, you want right. to hit the ball far, <laughs> you need to be flexible. And you're not going to be flexible right. if you're not hydrated. And uh, as you know, we're going to talk about the hydration, the nutrition, and the supplementation aspect and longer on the golf course on the next show. So we're going to get dive right. deeper into those, those strategies. But the sleep part is now the other half of the recovery and generation dynamic duo right. passive and active now we're into the passive recovery strategies which sleep is number one um especially yep. for those guys who are traveling uh a lot of my clients travel some of them travel across time zones it makes it more difficult to get quality sleep but quality sleep is going to be your number one uh recovery strategy by far regeneration strategy sleep is what helps uh, repair your brain and, re- and improves your ability to handle stress. And of course, any, any golfer could tell you that golf could be fun, but it could also be stressful, right? Um, so yep. a successful day on the golf course is going to begin with getting enough sleep the night before. Uh, and that goes really for anything, but we're, we're talking about golfers now. 
And then the question comes up as well, how much sleep do you need? And, uh, you know, there are people that are wearing a, a badge that I could get away with five hours sleep and it doesn't bother me. Um, not the kind of badge, badge you want to be wearing because long-term it's really not healthy. Uh, and it's just really a sign that they don't have healthy habits in place. And that's kind of what we're talking about is if you're not sleeping enough, and we'll talk about what enough is, how to start to establish better sleeping habits. Uh, and they are changing the way you do things. That's what a habit is. You know what? What's in, yeah? What's really interesting, Brett, in in the article. You know, I've I've read the uh, both uh, parts of the articles, and and what's mm. really interesting is what I'm sure a lot of people don't realize is that actually while you're sleeping, this is when your body does a lot of its work to repair the muscles and the stress that that you've uh, occurred during, uh, whether it be exercise or during activity that you're doing. Um, explain right. a little bit about that. And it actually, uh, what was even more fascinating about it is that actually our bodies were designed to sort of work in harmony uh, with the cycles of the sun as well, which was kind of interesting as well. So talk a little bit about that. Explain what you yeah. mean by that. Yeah, yeah. Well, these are things, concepts that I was introduced to many years ago when I studied uh, holistic lifestyle coaching from the Czech Institute in addition to my, my golf studies as well. Uh, and it's really to understand that our basic physiology is the same as our ancestors, our ancient ancestors who lived, as you just said, by the, by the rhythms of the sun, the moon, and the seasons. Um, but in modern times, at least for the last hundred years or so, when we've had the access to artificial light, uh, we yep. tend not to go to sleep when the sun goes down. Um, and that's why so many people are having difficulty getting enough sleep and complaining about being exhausted. There's other things that are in the way as well. Um, but this is this kind of bucking of nature, staying up past 10 o'clock, um, we start to run into a lot of problems. So the, the times that work best for the body to repair itself, as far as I know, are um, the physical repair cycle takes place approximately 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., that four-hour period. Mm-hmm. That's when the physical repair takes place. And then from two to six, and these are, you know, estimates based on lots of testing, that's when the nervous system. So uh, anyone that's gotten up before six o'clock, and I had to do that today (laughs) to go to work and then try to get a nap later on in the day, (laughs) uh, after about five hours, you're not thinking clearly. Uh, and So I could tell the the effect on my nervous system if I don't sleep till 6 a.m. If I sleep till 5.30, I feel okay. If I have to get up at 4, which I did today, I'm not feeling good by noon, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, even if I went to bed at 9 o'clock the night before. So it's not just how many hours you sleep, it's when you sleep. That's important, right? Because right. the, the sun setting is what starts to release the sleeping hormones, the mel- natural melatonin release in our body. And if we're exposing ourselves to artificial light way beyond the time the sun sets, um, it makes it more difficult for the nervous system to relax and calm down and for us to fall asleep. So that's why establishing sleep time habits is really important. Uh, Some of those strategies would be to try to stick to a schedule. Uh, I know most people do not, but we're used to going to bed at a certain time during the week to get up for work, but we stay up later on the weekends. Body doesn't know it's Saturday or it's Monday. It, it really works best when it's on a regimented clock, just like you would for an infant, right? Put the, ba- the baby to bed at the same time every night. 
Um, you want to sleep in complete darkness or as close to complete darkness as possible to keep light out of the eyes. That means you need to keep the TV out of the bedroom. And a lot of people have that habit, trying to fall asleep at the TV. Not a great habit to be in. Right. Uh, all those yeah. devices, computers, televisions, cell phones. In an ideal world, you'd shut them off an hour before bedtime to stop exposing yourself, your your eyes and your brain to that electromagnetic radiation, the blue light that's getting admitted from those devices that's stimulating your hormones to stay up. Uh, uh, not everyone's doing that, but that's what would be best. If you want to get a quality night's sleep, those are some of the things you need to do as, in, as well as another thing a lot of people don't think about, but avoiding alcohol and dessert at least an hour or maybe even two before you go to bed because those things, yep. which are mostly sugar, is going to spike your blood sugar levels and then you get a spike while you're asleep and it wakes you up in the middle of the night. Yeah, and that's a great point because, you know, in this day and age, uh, Brett, with social media and, and you know, uh, 5,000 channels, uh, you know, on your satellite dish or whatever, your cable network provider – you know, people are, are literally spending a lot of their time channel surfing all all day and all night. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There, there has to be a wind down or a cool down period, much like in exercise. You know, you 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 do a, a sort of an ease into your exercise. You do your exercise routine, and then you have a cool down. And the reason is, is you you know your your muscles are ramped up during the exercises. You can't just suddenly stop cool right. down and, and allow your, your body to recover. So it's the same thing in our sleep pattern. And you're exactly right. Um, introduction of our artificial lights and, and things like that has kind of thrown our, our natural cycles out of, out of kilter. And what ultimately ends up happening is, is people supplement. And, and again, I know we're going to talk about that in another show, but uh, mm-hmm. supplement um, that, that ability to be able to fall asleep by either uh, taking medication to do that uh, or finding other stimu- uh, you know other stimuli to to do that and you know the the idea folks is this is if you want to truly you know enjoy and play better golf uh you know certainly you you have to get out there and you have to practice and you have to do things um from an instructional standpoint but you also have to take care of your body and prepare your body both before and after the round in order to really get the maximum, you know, reach your maximum potential. And I think this is where uh, a lot of folks, Brett, and I'm sure you've seen this in, with many of the people that you've worked with, is where they're falling short is, you know, they're, they're more interested in going out and hitting golf balls for an hour and thinking that's going to help their game. Uh, but as I said earlier in the opening part of the segment is they get out there and by, you know, maybe hole 12 or 13, they're starting to lose energy because they haven't, you know, they haven't properly uh, – you know, gotten nutrition, but they're, they're not in good shape. They're not in, in, in mm-hmm. proper shape to, to be able to sustain that. Yeah, there's, Correct. there's no set of clubs on the planet and there's no amount of practice that is going to substitute for a well-rested and conditioned body. I mean, so you're just fooling yourself if, if that's all you're doing. And I'm, of course, there are people that are taking care of themselves, and, and but if you think just um, is going to solve your golf woes, it's it's not. And neither is just applying sleep. It's just one of the strategies that's going to help you perform better physically. Focus on what it is you need to do, not fatigue as rapidly uh, on the course, especially on a hot day if you're playing multiple days in a row. So, 
sleep is um, the time your body and your brain, you know, recover. And I guarantee that Mm -hmm. if someone gets enough rest on a regular basis, we're not talking about a one-time deal here, uh, that they're going to play better with adequate adequate sleep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, and it also reduces the risk of injury because your body's healing itself. Right, exactly. And just some quick tips um, that Brett has put together here is, and again, you know, he's not certainly saying that that you can't have a little bit of modification to these, but, you know, getting to bed at a decent time, you know, 10 p.m. as an example. I know sometimes with people's uh, work schedules and stuff and and other commitments, sometimes that might be a little bit later. Um, But generally you want to, you know, you're looking at getting between seven and a half to eight hours uh, of good rest each and every night. And I know that's, again, not always possible. So, there is some room for flexibility, but, um, sure. you know, you don't want to be out until all hours of the day after a long, hard days of work uh, or all hours of the night and then come back in and, and get, you know, three or four hours of sleep and then go out and expect it to play well on the golf course. Um, obviously, the longer you sleep, uh, you know, increases your, your REM or your rapid eye movement. So that's uh, uh, good as well. It gets the, the brain activity going and muscle relaxation, uh, relaxation, excuse me. And, uh and obviously that's going to help getting a proper sleep is going to help in your recovery process. Something else that caught my eye, which was kind of interesting, uh, part of the, the second uh, passive recovery, uh, one of the other strategies mm. is ice or cold therapy. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ice packs, baths, uh, cold and hot contrast showers, things athletes been doing for ages to help reduce inflammation uh, and flush toxins out of the body and recover faster. I, I used to be an endurance runner, and I could tell you that in order to run uh, what we call a tempo run on a Friday, which could be six to eight miles, and then a long run on a Sunday if you're training for a marathon, which could be upwards of up to 18 miles, if you don't flush those toxins out of your body and reduce inflammation, you don't want to put your foot down on the ground. So these things do work. Uh, uh, they're not they're not very comfortable. Uh, ice is right. hurts a little bit, but it depends <laughs> on you know how much you're playing, yeah, uh, and um, and and how inflamed you tend to be or how sore you tend to be. But um, hot and cold contrast showers work really well because they they reduce inflammation and then bring fresh blood um, to the surface. So that's that's a great strategy. There are places that athletes have access to most of the people listening would not where they have hot and cold contrast baths. Uh, but most people don't have access to that kind of facility. So the shower will do just fine. Just a couple of runs through. Uh, but yeah, that, that kind of stuff has been done for the longest time. And then I know you probably read in the article, the uh, something that's relatively new in the U S that know all that much about, but I know that uh, PGA tour players have been using it. Uh, based on a podcast I listened to, is cryotherapy, which is different from right. surface ice. Uh, that brings your body temperature down, or uh, dramatically, the room that you're in or the chamber that you're in is 120 to 140 degrees below zero as opposed to 32 degrees, which is what ice is. And the person would be wow. in there for two to three minutes, creates uh, a hormonal cascade in the body, a response in the body that reduces inflammation. I've never experienced it. One of my clients has. Um, and uh, he told me it wasn't terribly intolerable to be there for three minutes. But I can't, <laughs> quite honestly, can't, I can't imagine what 120 degrees feels like. Uh, so cryotherapy, 
that's another way that the professionals are using. They're looking for these places as they go from city to city to help them recover better and last longer on a golf course. Yeah. Yeah, I, I might. I think I would rather have the cold and and hot showers. <laughs> I think that, that yeah. the cryotherapy. I think I might have to pass on that. 120 right. below is a little bit, uh, but but again, it it just goes to the point that there there are certain strategies that are that are going to help, and and ultimately, you know, you know, in addition to conditioning our bodies and and getting prepared to to uh, you know to be more athletic. There's also recovery options as well that are equally as important. And, mm-hmm. and the third one here that you've got, which is a little bit more along my speed and probably uh, many others mm-hmm. out there, and that is, of course, uh, massage. I mean, who doesn't like a good yeah. massage? So talk a little yeah, bit about that, yeah. some of the benefits and, and how that helps. So this is like the active recovery strategy is just now passive. Instead of you having to perform the massage on yourself with the tools, you go someplace and relax and have somebody perform the massage on you. Um, I have met people that are adverse to massage. They don't like it or they've never had it or they did and they didn't enjoy it. I can't imagine that personally because anytime I've gone and gotten a massage, even if it's a bad massage, it's a good massage. Um, There's different kinds of massages. There's the Swedish, which tends to be a light touch, uh, very relaxing. And then we have um, sports or deep tissue massage, which gets a little more aggressive and tries to get those knots out with your elbows and your feet. It depends on the therapist and what, what modalities they've been taught. Um, but that definitely is uh, a way to recover faster. The only caveat it would be not to do a massage immediately after activity. You want to wait a couple of hours to um, uh, let your, your blood pH levels balance out. Um, so it is contraindicated immediately after exercise if you're in an inflamed state. So if you feel a, a little bit sore, I would say not. if you're already sore, not to have the massage. So soreness is, is a sign that the tissue is already irritated. Um, but otherwise, right. it will help you accelerate the rate at which you recover. Um, and anyone that's gotten a massage, typically the therapist will say, no, I want you to go drink a lot of water to flush the toxins out of your body. Because whenever they're pumping your tissue, they're moving toxins through the bloodstream, and you want to get it out with clean, clear water. So that's usually yep. the device you're going to get once you get a massage. And you'll fall asleep yep. much easier, wake up rested and ready to go. You know, and especially as we get into, um, Brett, you know, I, I'm in my uh, – basically my mid fifties, I'm a year shy, but basically my mid fifties. And, and obviously, you know, you tend to develop more inflammation as, as we get older. I mean, obviously depending on what you do, but um, just naturally as the body ages and it's more important to do that. And, you know, one of the great things about golf is compared to so many other athletic sports out there is it is in some ways a lower impact um, than say you know football or or soccer or something along that lines, so uh, or in even tennis, where well, yeah, most people you know most people can play. I mean, there's you know golfers out in the golf course that are up in their 80s and even in their 90s. 
Um, so yeah. it's more important to really ad- adhere to this. So let's just do a very quick recap, if we can, as we get ready to sort of close out this segment, um, because sure. we want people to be able to last longer on the golf course. Let's just very quickly, sort of a bullet point, if you will, um, just go through what we talked about tonight um, so that the golfers get a general idea, and then we're going to direct them to your website so that they can go and read the article in a little bit more detail and and uh, and and you know look at some of the options that you've laid out there and and also look at some yeah. of the images. So just very quickly, just recap yeah. what we talked about tonight. So the the basic premise was to, to get the amateur golfer to understand that um, to play multiple days in a row, they need to have a plan or a process in place to help them recover. And that those recovery and regeneration strategies are both passive, meaning they're relaxed. They're not doing anything to create this recovery. It's uh, those are the ones we talked about earlier, sleep, massage, right. ice, et cetera, or active. And those are the rolling, the self myofascial release or self uh, massage and the stretching, post-exercise stretching, right? So any one of those or all all of the above will help accelerate the rate at which your body recovers, regenerates, and then you could go back out the next day feeling as fresh as you possibly can to play well the following day rather than being fatigued or, or, you know, dropping out on the back nine or in the second round of the same day, however it is you play your game. Uh, I mean, I've heard all these things before with my own clients that play multiple days in a row. They'll do better in the first round than the second round um, until they, they're in better condition, right? So conditioning does play a huge role. If, you, if you're going to really take it seriously, and the guys that I work with take it seriously, they're conditioning themselves all year round. And typically when they do start the season, they notice – that they can last longer because of their conditioning level. And they have these yep. strategies in place because I've taught them. Right. And, and you know, as I was alluding to very early on in the discussion, you know, a lot of people think that they've got to get into some big fitness regime in order to accomplish a lot of this. And this is really not what you're talking about. You're talking about very sim- a simple approach to not only get ready to play, uh, but more importantly, what you need to do after you've played in, in order to be able to recover uh, and be able to get back out there. So these are some great tips, and uh, I, we're going to now direct you to to uh, Brett's uh, website. We'll give you a link in that, so you can go and read this article and many others that he's got posted there on his website um, so that you'll be able to last longer on the golf course. There's some great options there. Uh, certainly we want to get out as instructors. I want you to get out there and, and work on your game, but I also uh, want you to be fit and ready to be able to play because I guarantee you if you do uh, the things that we talked about here on the show tonight, you're going to play much better golf, uh, but more importantly, you're going to enjoy uh, some better golf. So, uh, Brett, as we wrap up, for those that want to reach out to you and learn a little bit more, where can they go and, and where can they read this article? Yeah, um Everything's going to be in one place, www.nygolffitnessguru.com. And if they want to read any of the articles, they just click on the blog tab. Uh, I've lost track of how many I've written, but there's many. (laughs) (laughs) They're not going to get bored. Uh, I just posted one about swing style. It's part one of of a two-parter. The second part I'll finish next week. Um, I've already posted an article 
relating to hydration, which is part of what we're going to discuss next month when we get to the nutrition, hydration, and supplementation aspect of preparing and recovering from uh, multiple days of golf. Perfect. Yeah. Well, Brett, I want to thank you very much for yeah for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's very uh, interesting and great discussion as always, and I look forward to the next part uh, in this series. And, and as you said, talking about nutrition and hydration, uh, we'll get a little bit more in depth about that and and how mm-hmm. uh, what an important role it plays. Uh, and, and again, being able to get out there and not only lasting longer on the golf course, but enjoying it and having more fun. And that's really what it's all about. It it, it uh, you know. It, it is a sport, but it's also a game, too, that we want people to enjoy. And you're going to enjoy it a whole heck of a lot more if you take better care of yourself. So, Brett, as always, thank you very much for very joining me tonight in Golf Talk Live. And I look forward to you coming back next time. Have a great weekend and stay dry. Okay. Uh, I'll try. I'll talk to you next month. Have a good yeah. one. Thanks, Ted. All right. Thanks, Brett. All right. Be well. Thanks for having me. All right. That was my very special guest, Brett Cohen. Uh, the... Um, Special guest that I had on tonight, he's a golf fitness instructor and founder of the NY Golf Fitness Guru. You go to nygolffitnessguru.com is his website. You can check out under the blog uh, tonight's uh, great article and discussion that we had here. It's uh, definitely a good read, so go and check it out. Uh, Or you can also reach out through that website as well, Uh, nygolffitnessguru.com. There's a contact section there as well that you can reach out to Brett uh, if you're going to be up in the New York area, you may want to uh, reach out and, and see what he can do to help you. So, um, again, uh, special thanks to uh, my guest tonight, Brett Cohen, uh, golf fitness instructor and Fitness Over 50 Authority and the founder of NY Golf Fitness Guru. Uh, also, again, a special thanks to Clint Wright and Brandon Stukesbury for uh, joining me earlier uh, on the Coach's Corner panel. Thanks, guys, for, as always, doing a great job. I appreciate it very much. Uh, you always uh, manage to bring your best. And... Uh, most importantly, I want to take this opportunity to thank all the listeners worldwide for faithfully tuning into Golf Talk Live each and every week. And uh, as I always say, I have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of highly talented coaches and teacher professionals, authors, and entrepreneurs stop by. And it's really through their participation and guest appearances that help make uh, Golf Talk Live a first-class show. Uh, thanks to all of the uh, participants on the show and uh, most importantly to the sponsors and supporters of the show, uh, Mr. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. Go to southcoastgolfguide.com and check out uh, his great publication. Uh, also, Meredith Kirk from Meredith Kirk Golf. Go to meredithkirk.com. It's her website. Nikki and Tiffany Litherland, thanks for all of your help over the years in spreading the word. Uh, Bernie Pinder from Ontic Golf, uh, ontigolf.com, a great line of customized putters. Uh, Sean Kelly, owner of linkedgolfers.com, a great social media platform. And last but not least, Mr. Peter Doyle from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thank you guys uh, for all of your uh, continued support uh, of the program. And on that note, I will see you next Tuesday. Uh, As I mentioned, if you tune in to the Women of Golf, I will see you next Tuesday here on the blogtalkradio.com network, uh, Women of Golf Show, where I'll have uh, another great guest. Uh, Cindy won't be joining me next week or the week after. She's going to be heading out to a Legends Tour event and uh, a couple of other things for the next two weeks. So she won't be here, uh, but I will be there. So tune in from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern on the blogtalkradio.com network to the Women of Golf Show. And next Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central, uh, you can join me right here on Golf Talk Live for another great round of Coach's Corner and another insightful interview with my special guest that evening. So make sure you come back and join me on blogtalkradio.com. Uh, next Thursday on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.